Welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast. Today we welcome our 15th guest to the podcast. His name is Martin Rooney. Martin is an English sprinter who specializes in the 400 meter event and has competed in various European and world championships throughout his career. Martin reached the 400 meter final at the 2008 Beijing Olympics and won bronze at the 4 by 400 meter event. Martin went on to compete at the London 2012 and Rio Olympics. Some of Martin's major achievements include winning gold at the 2014 European Championships in the 400 meters and 4 by 400 meter events, winning silver at the 2010 and 2018 European Championships and winning silver at the 2009 and as well as bronze at the 2015 and 2017 at World Championships in 4 times 400 meters events. Outside of sport, Martin is the co-host of a sports podcast called That Greaves and Rooney Sports Podcast with Paralympian Dan Greaves. So let's welcome Martin to the podcast. Can you hear us? I can. How's it going, gents? Going good, okay. going good. How about yourself? All good. Sweating, but oh, not man. too bad. I swear, it's the, the temperature's bumped up in the last couple of hours because it wasn't that bad this morning, but I've just been recording like other stuff um, for projects and things and... Uh, I'm sweating now, like bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> so that, hot. Hence the vest. I was I did an interview earlier and I was in like a, a polo thing and I was just dripping with sweat and I was like, it's just sort of I better look like sweaty all on my head and everything. I was like, sod it, who cares? Just carry on. What's it like in Spain, John? Same old. Um, a lot of wind. Like I, I keep saying every time, but I feel like that's the key. Like. So oh, the, the key is that air conditioning unit behind your head. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, yeah, definitely that helps. But, um, but yeah, I heard in, in the UK it's just too hot. It's not even nice. <laughs> it's okay. It's yeah. just like, it's just because our houses aren't built for it, are they? They're just built to be insulated and keep warm. And yeah, like, yeah, it's just hot. We were due thunderstorms at the end of the week, but I think that's turned into like people are saying there's going to be another like prolonged heat wave and things like that. So yeah, maybe outside it's all gone really grey here. So like, all right. assuming it's going to come down soon. The thing is, when it starts thunderstorming and raining and it's still hot, it's such horrible weather because it's all sticky and uh, yeah. it's fun. It's fun it's, for the kids as well. For my kids, they just run outside naked, literally go out in the garden <laughs> and like they soak it up. It's it's good fun to be fair. Yeah. Are you been busy today then? Uh, a bit, fair bit with the college and um, yeah, I did a, a little interview for BBC East Midlands today and then that's it really. It's kind oh, you, of got, a, you got the big time now, Master of the The highlight of my day. Yeah. So here we go. So something we like to do when we, uh, we, we get a guest on is for them to take us through what it was like growing up. If you were to take us through like a chronological sort of timeline of your life, um, and sort of your athletics career, what would that look like? Um, that's obviously a long time ago now. I'm 34. So uh, I grew up in Croydon uh, in South London. Um, two, I've got a great family. Like uh, my parents, uh, very supportive people, very driven people, work very hard. Uh, I've got an older sister and two younger brothers. And um, in our own way, we all excelled at something. And okay. um, I think my parents were the kind of the key to that. Like they didn't really, they weren't pushy parents, but they just led by example. They kind of, my dad was, uh, work all the hours he could. Um, and my mom kind of supported us and put us through everything that she could do. Uh, so she like, they just, 
they just worked very hard. And I think that was always the example I had from a young age. It was always like, if you want something, like we had, uh, we lived in not the nicest neighborhood, but we had a, lo a lovely house. You know, we lived in a, a spacious -ish kind of house in, in a, um, we had a good garden and things like that. So, um, and we always had like clean clothes, you know, stuff like that. We had food on the table, clean clothes. I, I went to school with kids who literally had one pair of shoes and if they played football or whatever, they had to take the shoes off because their parents would go mad at them for destroying their shoes. So yeah. it was, um, yeah, I was, I was very fortunate. I understood, I understood how fortunate I was from a young age as well. So I think that's um, kind of always saying that I'm going to try it. It's going to be harder for my kids. I think we, we live in Loughborough. It's a nice part of the world. It's, um, parents are at home a lot because <laughs> they're athletes or yeah, yeah. Um, you know it's just a different world here like um uh crime rates so much lower here and you're generally just safe i think mm. down there i kind of learned like to i suppose be streetwise and um aware of your surroundings at all times yeah now sort of similar um so i'm from leicester as well okay. uh so but i grew up in the nicer part of a rough area um but my friends, like like you said, at school, um, they all lived in in probably the the rougher area, and I always used to hang around there. And sort of the work ethic that my dad put into me is something that, yeah, I feel obviously he was a manual labour. Um, he would take me along with him to work, and I feel like I've translated that into in other aspects of my life. So the fact that you're conscious of that, and the fact that you're trying to install it in your kids, is is definitely such an important important thing. Yeah, I think um, the labouring's tough in it. Oh yeah, I still oh, do it now. Along alongside yeah. my studies, uh, I run a gardening business. Uh, so he, my dad, did a gardening company, and then um, in my first year of uni, so about five years ago, he fell sort of ill, um, and he, he couldn't do it anymore. So he passed it down to me. Yeah, it's seasonal work, so I do it alongside my studies. So March to October, but I'm studying during the winter, so it works sort of perfect. You earn your money during summer, and then it funds you for winter. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. but no, I, I, that, I love that it. fun lifestyle in the winter. Yeah, it sort of humbles you a little bit. I mean, 100%. being at Love Reunion, me and John realized this. We did like a networking thing where we had to present a poster, and we realized that everyone on our course is sort of like Olympians or <laughs> or elite athletes. And then there's me who's getting up at half five in the morning to go and graft. It's like yeah no i think athletics we once so i labored for my dad for a couple of like uh, from probably about 14 15 years old and we just did it as a, like on the weekends or when i remember finishing my gcse's i remember laboring and i literally did it every day of the week well six days a week um yeah. for the whole summer and i was like do i, do I really want to do this like yeah. i bet i bet i could get good at something and that was kind of for me like the the kind of turning point i suppose and right this if you want to do you don't want to be on a building site all the time then this is uh this is your future's got to change 100 that's that's how i think of it as well uh my dad used to have a couple of my mates like work for us as well and i remember one of my mates he uh he come in to do a day and after the day completed he went thanks so much neil for uh, bringing me in because i do not want to do this for the rest of my life <laughs> that's it. yeah it's huge it's huge <laughs> So how the so how did you end up in athletics and would you say was it that main purpose like not wanting to you know tag along with your dad or um I think like, I I was always I always did sport I went to a school where um it was a big rugby school and I was mm. a, I was a beanpole right super skinny kid but I was fast and I enjoyed the physical physical part of rugby but I wasn't from that background where I didn't go to the primary school that played it you know I, I literally joined it 
uh, in year seven and got beaten up and brawled and all those kind of things but i loved it i loved that whole, whole thing but with athletics i was just i always found it like it just suited me it suited my men, my mentality of um I'm, I'm a terrible loser and i think in athletics it's it's all about how you perform whereas yeah. in like rugby or football or whatever it was it was always like well if someone else makes a mistake i couldn't handle it i used to unleash on them i was a terrible teammate and it kind of like it was so it's like completely opposite to who i am now uh, as a teammate like i was hard on my team i'm hard on the guys in my team now but i'm, oh, I'm not, not i was hard in my team <laughs> i'm not in the team anymore um, oh, no. <laughs> but um yeah it's uh it, as a kid like playing rugby and uh, and other team sports like football and cricket or whatever it was always like i couldn't handle losing and athletics was the one that kind of it was down to me if i performed well like yeah there's a team well, network well, like, of there's a network of people behind me but um so um yeah, so athletics was the one that kind of the sport that for me that I really could just be in control of my own destiny, I suppose. And yeah, yeah, like not being on a building site was something that was kind of a nice kind of like it was long days, you know, like you said, you're leaving at five, six in the morning and you're you're working, you get home at like six o'clock at night, you're dirty, tired, whatever. And I was like, like there's good money in it and it's a great industry if you're in it and it's what you want to do. But it wasn't something I felt like uh, I, maybe it was just not my my destiny or whatever. Yeah, no, for sure. Some people just absolutely have the bug for something like that. Oh, I think it's quite nice working outdoors sometimes, um, like especially during like this weather where I'm out mowing lawns and things like that. But you originally was compete or, or training um, 800 meters and 1500, wasn't you? Um, yeah. And then you sort of made the transition to 400. When did you realize you were so good at, at 400 meters? Um, uh, yeah, I started off with cross country, middle distance running, but I also like for my club, I did everything, whatever they asked me to do, if it was pole vault, I couldn't bend the pole, but I tried, you know, um, and I did, I always did the relays. I was always in the four by one. Um, I'd be doing like 1500 meters and then at the end of the meet, I'd be doing the four by one with the, the other guys and yeah. I'd be as, as good as them. So I wasn't like, I was a bad sprinter and I kind of just fell upon like um, the 400 one year. I was just like, you know what? It's, Let's just have a go at it. Did it for my club, and within like two or three races, I was like quite high ranked in the national in the country. I was, I think, probably by my third race, I was British number one. And I was like, well, I'm 16 years old, so under 20 age group. I've got a couple of years in this age group, and I'm like British number one. This is kind of easy, like. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I kind of, obviously, at that age where it is, you're enjoying it and you're running well and you you're winning all the time. It's kind of like, well, I'm going to stick with this. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was kind of, uh, it's, um, I probably felt like once for a long time in my career, I was going to move back up to 800. Um, but I didn't really achieve what I wanted in the 400. So I didn't, I wasn't ready to leave it. And yeah, the time kind of passed when I could have probably peaked in the 800. So. Okay. We sort of had a similar finding uh, with Emily Borthwick and she was doing a different event and then suddenly did high jump and she found out she was absolutely unreal at it and she, <laughs> she found it quite easy. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, now obviously she's going to Tokyo now, so fair play. Yeah, she's got a great mentality for it. I think she's uh, she enjoys like it's it's something that she's obviously taken to pretty well. Obviously she, now she's Olymp she's going to the Olympics, and um, it's, it's kind of how she's quite refreshing to see just someone who's just kind of come in a bit raw and uh, succeeded. And even her like uh, like physiologically, like she's not at all the same as uh, her her competitor. So mm -hmm. I really resonate with the point there, saying that it's refreshing to see like she's quite shorter. So yeah, it's, 
it's exciting to see it. I wish her all the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's she's definitely not your six foot five blank of Vasic. She was like a beam pole <laughs> basically fell over the top of the bar. You can see she's actually she is actually high jumping and it's um uh, I think it'll be a great experience for her in Tokyo. I think she might rise to the occasion and surprise a lot of people. She seems to be setting PB after PB at the moment. Yeah. No, popping off. Um, so during that period where you were kind of like, okay, this is easy for me. Do you feel like you kind of established, like you established yourself as, uh, you know, as an athlete then? Or do you feel like, okay, now it's time to do the real work and try and be the best? Um, I don't think I really realized like how hard it was to be an athlete until I was probably like 27, to be honest. Like I'd been, I'd been going a long, long time and I thought what I was doing was world-class for a long time um mm. and then uh, i joined another group and my eyes were opened very quickly um i trained with at 27 i joined a, a coach called Rainer Ryder, and um oh, 26 26 27 anyway and um he uh had a triple jumper in his group who happened to be like world olympic champion or whatever a guy called christian taylor and he just took me to school on these sessions some 350s that we were doing like so it should be like my bread and butter should be something that i'd absolutely destroy him yeah and this triple jumper takes me out and the first 10 meters he's just gone past me i'm like what are you doing you an idiot and then it's like yeah. he just keeps going and i was like oh and it just made me realize that, okay look what i thought was world class isn't world class and it kind of it brought the most, the best out of me and it was something that uh, i thrived upon being the worst person in the group is sometimes something I, I learned to love and adapted to and definitely got uh, the best results out of me yeah something we was going to so touch on so obviously you realized you're <laughs> You, you was good at 27. So how old were you when you went to your first Olympics in 2008? And how did it uh, feel when you was going to compete there? So I was 21 years old and I was training well. Uh, I'd had a really good winter. Um, I was in a group of very good athletes as well. Maybe not at the same level as our Olympic champions, but I was in a good group of guys and we worked really well together and things just clicked. Um, I made a big program, massive progress in the 400. I went from 45-3. Uh, I went into the games unbeaten, and I think at the games around 44-60. Um, but at that stage, I was just loving it. I was just loving life. Like my dream as a kid, when I started doing athletics, was like I want to go to the Olympics, and I was I was living my dream at 21 years old. And mm. I was in a position where, when you're in, you've got momentum in anything. It, life is easy. Like I, I was. Everything was happening for me. Everything was clicking. I was uh, I was winning races everywhere I went. I was making good money. I was in a position where it's the first time I've really had money in my pocket. Um, and I was just enjoying what I was doing. I was traveling around the world. People were like, I'd go to races in like Monaco and win in Monaco and meet the prince and stuff. And it was like, this is cool. <laughs> this is a different world. Um, so it was, it was an amazing experience. And to go to Beijing, I think it, the, the the national stadium in Beijing is is I've described it on a, on a podcast before like it, it gives you a bit of a semi when you see it if that makes sense like <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's beautiful like it's Isn't stunning it? yeah it's, good to it, go. it's, it, it's the bird it's the bird's nest so it's like um, I I just got so excited about being at the warm up track and you looking at this awe-inspiring structure and you're like oh wow this is this is it this is your, your adrenaline's pumping and um it was just it was just built for performance you know it was built like you go there and without going too much innuendos but it was there to do the job you know <laughs> <laughs> and yeah it was a it was um, a really fun experience yeah 
we were probably like quite young when we actually watched that on TV. I remember watching it in like my kitchen and uh, like the opening ceremony. And it was yeah, from what I remembered, it was an impressive stadium. But I don't yeah. remember it that well. <laughs> we was like ten years old then, so yeah, yeah. that's no. weird to think of that. It yeah, it's it's a long time ago, and um, yeah, as an, as a games like you can't really ask for much more. Like they invested, mm. I think it was like twenty one billion dollars. Um, back in 2000, like, so 2008 compared to today's money, that's a huge amount of money, but also yeah. like slave labor and everything, you know, that wasn't human rights, wasn't, re isn't really a thing in China, is it? So mm. like, um, they just, it was the best constructed games that could ever be. Yeah. Okay. What was, what was it like? Um, so obviously your first games, I mean, we, we've talked about this quite a lot. Uh, my experiences with pressure and not being able to handle it, but at such a bad level. So obviously just Sunday league at football and cup finals, but how could you cope with the pressure of competing at your first Olympics in front of those crowds? What was that like? And did you implement any sort of strategies to help you cope or how, how did you cope yourself? I think, I think pressure is relative, isn't it? Like I was probably as nervous at the Olympic final as I was on my driving test, you know, like, oh, wow. um, um, it's it's all relative to what's it means to you like if it means the world to you then it, it, it's uh the way i i learned later on was that pressure pressure is a privilege you're lucky to have that pressure on your shoulders um yeah. at that stage i was just rolling with it and um, i was puking my guts up before every race because i was so nervous but um i saw that as a, a thing of like your body's ready this is like it's getting okay. this is your final moments before you compete your body's clearing out its system and everything is about performance now. And um, that's how I handled that situation then. It was just like every race I was there to go and win it. And every race I was there to just soak up the atmosphere, soak up the the, the feeling of running for my country in an Olympic game. So it just felt, I'd been to world champs, I'd been to two world champs already um, at that stage. Um, and this just felt different. It felt like a step, step above. And um, it felt like this is where I wanted to be. This is... Uh, this is um, the pinnacle of our sport, and and I wanted to thrive in that situation. Being quite young, did you use those Olympics to kind of observe your competitors and maybe like see what they're doing, how they prepare uh, for competition, and use that for like your later Olympics? Um, did you kind of use that as a learning opportunity? Um, I I think I did, but I felt like um, at 21 you feel like oh, I've got a long career ahead of me. It's fine. Yeah. Whatever happens, happens. It's, it's a learning curve, which is I hate the the term learning curve. So many athletes use it as an excuse, and I did. I definitely did at some stage. I was like, oh, I was just part of the learning curve. Whereas rather, it's like these opportunities don't come all, around all the time. Um, making an Olympic final at 21 years old, uh, it happens to lots of athletes, and it's up to the athlete to take advantage of that. Um, and the final, I came sixth, I think, fifth or sixth, sixth. And um, like third place was within an arm's reach. Like it's not far. Mm. Um, so that's an opportunity missed, really. Like, uh, and I only realized that after I crossed the line, I was like, damn. <laughs> like literally, like I'm an arm away from an Olympic medal. And yeah. it, it really did. It was a tough moment to have. Um, but I did learn about how to be around at a championship. So I, I learned, I definitely learned that rolling with, going with the moment, enjoying the moment, being in it rather than stressing about it was uh, was the best way for me to perform. Uh, I had a, a training partner at the time, an Irish guy called David Gillick, who's a fantastic athlete, won European indoor medals beforehand, well, he won the championships beforehand. 
but the Olympics was huge and he, he bottled it. He got to the, he basically had three weeks of in the pre-camp where he was just nervous energy the whole time. And he couldn't, he didn't have the the best games where like he should have at least made semi-final. He got knocked out in the heats because he was just so tense. Yeah. Um, so I definitely learned how to be like what would, what would suit me as an athlete. It's been relaxed and like I said, living in the moment, enjoying the moment for what it is. In those feelings of ner- like when you were talking about those feelings of nervousness before and the fact that you use that as a positive and the fact that mm. it was like, oh, my body's ready now. Um, having that positive mindset is definitely key to to sort of succeed in, in your sport because, yeah, like you said, that guy, those feelings of nervousness can really um, hinder your performance. That's sort of why I got into psychology. The difference between being good and great, you might be a great sprinter, but mm-hmm. if you can't perform on the day, like you're not gonna, you're not gonna succeed. So, and it's all about at the end of the day, you want to look back on your career and have as many medals as possible. So if you missed out on those medals, those are the ones you, you actually think about more than the ones you won. So, mm-hmm. definitely handling pressure. And that, there are some fantastic athletes out there. You watch them and how they handle situations. Christian Taylor was the one, like for me, um, watching him later on. So in 2015. Um, win, I think it was maybe second or third world chance by then. <laughs> He's won loads. Um, but like last round, best round, like he came out and he jumped just off the world record, Jonathan Edwards' world record, and the pressure had been on him. But he was like, this is what I'm here for. This is my moment. This is it. And he's a very placid, nice person. And the aggression on this man's face when he was on the on the, on the runway was, it was unreal. Like you could, you, goosebumps thinking yeah. about it. Like it was, it was a... Uh, that's the level. There's levels to this thing, and the, you see it in every sport. You see uh, Federer or Nadal, or you see Ronaldo or people like that. Just how they handle the pressure and perform. Um, and uh, it was uh, obviously your sport, sports psych student. Um, you talk about the boys when they're going up for the penalty uh, at for England and stuff like you. You see just the persona and the, the confidence that they exuded uh, or didn't. It was so obvious they were going to miss penalties to me. Like yeah. um, when Saka stepped up, I I knew before before he took it that especially looking at someone like Donna Roma, like it, it was a such a daunting task for. Like we we, we recently spoke with the, with the coach and he was saying that obviously the way they selected the penalties was um, during training whoever had the highest success rate took the penalties. But I think yeah. I, personally, I feel like a lot more goes into it than just that. Yeah. It's, a, it's a justified way to, to pick your penalty takers and if you're going to do it that way you might as well stick by the book but mm. the pressure of the moment to put a 19 year old on the fifth pen who's uh, not really took a professional penalty before I think you've got to have those those moments beforehand to be able to handle it in, in that especially with a nation on your back yeah. um, someone I feel who who is so good at um, handling pressure in, in track and field is Usain Bolt the way he just mm. carries himself around it must be so, um, I don't know, not daunting, but you know what I mean about his competitors looking at him, just yeah. really seeking in that that event. Oh, it must be, yeah. There's people who handle it really well. At the end of the day, like with you saying, like he's an exceptional athlete, and the way I, I only from the outside, really, he handled pressure was he just enjoyed. Like he seemed to be the person I learned from, like enjoying the moment. But then when it got behind the line, like literally as soon as he started setting up his blocks, it was he was a different animal. Um, mm-hmm. And there's people who who just don't have the leg speed, but who matched him in a race. There's a British guy called James Desalu, um, 
who's a 991 sprinter at peak. And I remember him in, in London 2012, and he was in the heat with Bolt. And obviously, even though he's a British guy, everyone's still looking at Bolt. But for 60 meters, this guy's like, well, I've got Bolt, I've got him in my back. And Bolt's looking across at him, going, like chasing him down, running, like, I've got to run a lot quicker now. And so there is guys who could match him mentally, but physically, like, he's just a different level. Like, he was a unreal beast and a, a pleasure to have seen run and to, yeah, we're, I think we're all lucky as sports fans just to have seen the guy move. He sort of combines the two of being not only be able to perform under pressure, but also being that absolute freak of nature. Yeah, yeah. he must have had so so much pressure going into like the the next Olympic Games every time. So 2012, 2016, like everyone was expecting him to win. So I feel like that adds even more pressure, you know, to one, you know. And also the pressure to perform, like not, not like as an athlete, but everyone expects him to be this exactly. happy, bubbly guy. And like he is, every movement was watched. I remember going to meets where he had to have sections of the dining area like sealed off for him just because he was like, I can't, let me just have 20 minutes to myself or yeah, yeah. not someone else, some VIP coming up, ask for a ticket, uh, for a photograph or an autograph, just let mm -hmm. me chill out for a bit. So that ad added stress and pressure, like how he handled that. Uh, he held a sport. He represented a nation. He was, um, he he was up there. Like you think about how much pressure he's probably like in a, like almost like a pro president kind of level. You know, like Barack Obama kind of level. Like the things that he does has a massive influence not only on his sport but on the, the global face of the sport and his country. So, yeah, huge amounts of pressure for him. You know the Olympics. Are you? Do you mingle with like the other athletes from the other nations? Like, are you allowed? Is it? Yeah. Previously, obviously, this this game to be yeah, very secluded. Yeah. Um, mm. They can't even sit at the same table without having a uh, glass yeah. in between them, which kind of looks a bit rubbish because they go back to their rooms and they're in the same room together. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, it's it, it's normally yeah. You kind of Beijing was a really like I'd been to a Commonwealth Games in Melbourne uh, at at eighteen. 18 years old and it's a similar situation maybe not at such a grand scale but you go into your food hall and just every athlete from every sports in there um i remember in beijing i remember seeing some of the chinese basketball players so uh yao ming yeah i remember being the cute huge guy but i remember being the queue for mcdonald's at the end of the game so we used to have mcdonald's in the village and he's there, and then Tom Daly's next to him. Oh wow! <laughs> it's literally like <laughs> you're taking the piss, guys. Like <laughs> yeah. you, you could not have not have set this up better. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you see, like Nadal walking around. Nadal loves it. Nadal is someone that um, first of all, I didn't realize how big he is. He's about six foot four, I think, six foot three. Jeez. So when you see him play, you don't think he's a tall guy. Oh, but yeah. I, I was like almost eye level with him. And then, but he just walks around the village like normal. Like he's getting his food, he's cool, he's chilled. If people want a picture, he has a picture. Um, when my first games in 08, Ronaldinho was in the village, and it was oh like, my God. yeah, like peak Ronaldinho as well. 08, like he was amazing, but you couldn't get anywhere near him. Basically, the whole rest of their team was just huddled around him, and like you, like they walked like you know, like a, a school of fish. They were literally like that's how they <laughs> yeah. went through the village. So like someone at the front was directing the flow, and everybody yeah, just yeah. huddled around. <laughs> And uh, so it was pretty amazing to see those people there. Um, I think the US basketball team came in. They only come in and leave. They don't hang about. They, they kind of like LeBron yeah. James, those guys. Uh, to be honest, it must be the same for the, like what Bolt has for them. Like Bolt doesn't really come out when he's in the Olympic Village. He, he might be there for one or two days, but not when he's in competition mode because 
he's never going to get on with his day. He's always going to have loads of people coming up to him. And mm. um, but it's an amazing thing, and I think it's it's a shame for some of the athletes now that go into their first games that they, they won't have that experience. They won't be able to just wander up and see um, Novak Djokovic hanging around. I think he's there this time. So yeah. What was all this talk about possibly Tokyo being cancelled? I, I saw some some tweets going on about it. What, what, what's the deal with that? I think it's just ongoing, isn't it? I think um, the the risk, obviously, the rates there are very low compared to here. I think they had like seven hundred new cases one of the days compared okay. to where we get like a couple of thousand. Um, <laughs> but they obviously see that as a state of emergency. They don't want coronavirus to be brought in, um, and I, I don't think that's been handled well. Like I feel like. The, Brit the, the British Olympic Association has done a fantastic job of PCR tests, lateral flows, all that. Like they have like this strict regime that they have to do before they go away. Mm. Uh, athletes weren't allowed to travel. So like um, there was a, an age group championships that some people were planning to go to, but they got selected for the Olympics. And then they're like, oh, I can't go. Even though it would have been a great opportunity for them to develop and win the championships. It's like, no, you can't go because you're going to the Olympics. Mm. But then you get to the airport and they just stick you on a commercial flight and they don't give you a designated area. And it's kind of, um, it's, uh, there's obviously there's a group of athletes who uh, had to isolate because they were pinged by somebody else who was on a flight who's failed a COVID test. So um, it's, it's nearly right. I think they've, they've done, they've done a really good job in some parts, but just one or two little things they should have done better. Like literally everyone fly out at the same time on one or two designated flights and then no one else is allowed on that plane. Um, yeah. It's not as if they haven't got lots of flights going anyway, but <laughs> at least from a Japanese point of view as well, then people are like, they're controlling as much of the controllables and they're reducing the risk. And then it satisfies a lot of the, uh, the unrest. Um, and it still could be cancelled at any time. I think uh, the, um, yeah, I think it will take a big amount of cases, but at, yeah. uh, until at the moment, it looks like it's definitely going ahead. There was a lot of pings in, in the UK recently. A lot of people have been deleting the app because they just yeah. keep getting pinged um, yeah. and then having to isolate and it, well, it affects their job. And a lot of the time they come back negative. So, yeah, no, it's a, it's a weird time. Everything Everything's open now in the UK. I, I mean, I, I went to the gym this morning trying to book a book a slot on my app uh, and then I rang because it weren't letting me in. Turns out you could just turn up now. Oh, so, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Progression. Progression. Yeah. yeah. Talking about like, in like Spain. sorry. Oh, in Spain, in Spain, the like that it's getting worse. Like they're looking to to put curfews on now. I think there's one where where I am now at one o'clock in the. It's fine, one o'clock okay. in the morning, so it's not too bad. But yeah. um, but yeah, but I'm I'm originally from Belgium, so over okay. there it's um it's, it's also not as good. But yeah, hopefully uh hopefully it'll be better. Have you had both your jobs? Yeah, well, I have. Yeah, yeah. I've only got one at the moment. I might just turn up now. Yeah, well, I, I ended it like about two weeks ago, so I think I've got to wait. And mm. I think it's minimum four or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I had mine done Leicester General maybe about maybe about twelve weeks ago now, and then it was like basically just after uh, I raced in Gateshead, I've got it the next day. I booked it, but it was it's very easy now. So yeah, no, I'm going to get lucky at that done. So um, back to the Olympics. So. Let's speed up to London 2012. Yeah. Um, so obviously it's the home Olympics. Um, you know what question I'm going to ask you now. <laughs> um, did you kind of feel extra pressure, um, you know, competing in front of the home crowd, or did you kind of thrive uh, thanks to that? Um, 
you know, I said about my training partner for three weeks, yep. he was just nervous energy. We kind of had that for about five years. Um, literally. So we kind of had it at the back of your head going into Beijing. We already knew the next Olympics was in London. So it was already like there and it just kept on getting bigger and bigger. And like, we have championships on the way you have like, well, two world champs, you have a European champs, Commonwealth games, but it's always still about London 2012 and nothing else really like, uh, is the most from our sponsorship, uh, funding, media, whatever. It was all about London 2012. Were you ready? So it was, it was different. It was a completely different environment. Um, to 2008 where everything was kind of just felt like it for me it was just like one or two years really whereas this was like a long building yeah. um and going to the games like it was i really enjoyed like the my coach had basically for the year from like october onwards he put me in an altitude tent so i had to sleep in this altitude tent um which meant for it to be worthwhile you had to do 12 hours a day or 12 hours a night um otherwise you were just wasting your time anyway so it basically kept me from doing any media. I couldn't go down to London to do any like sponsorship stuff. It kind of cost me a bit of money in the end. Yeah. Bloody coach. <laughs> but like it was, um, it was there. He was doing it for my own good. He was like, look, you're going to get too much attention. I, I did a bit of a media block out as well. And they always, they couldn't get their head around it. I was like, well, no, I'm just, I want to be ready. I want to be ready yeah. for the games. Um, and it, it kind of worked. Like I started my season. I think my first race was average. My second race, I went to world number one. Um, I beat like previous Olympic champion. I was like, oh, this is working. Um, it justified it all, you know, I felt great. Um, and then I picked up a bit of a hip injury. I tore my labrum in at the end of May. So I came back from the States. I was I'd raced in Doha, ran well there, came like third or fourth there in a good time. And then I raced in Hengelo in Holland and I tore my labrum there. And it was like, literally every step I took was just in pain. Um, so kind of go from like being on the top of the world to like going to the home games and just not enjoying it. Like not, not, I enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed going to the games, but not being as, as when 2008, everything was kind of flowing. I was just running. I could win every race. It was brilliant um, to go into a game where you're like, I'm in pain. This is okay. not fun. This is a different game. And then you go there and yeah, the pressure is different. Like uh, I, I walked out in the, the my wife, uh, she was my girlfriend at the time. She uh, she was a pole vaulter, so um, she made the games. It was her second games, and I walk out with her heats on at the same time as my heats. I walk out into the stadium, it's beautiful sunshine, and they announce Kate Dennison to the crowd like she's on the runway, and the crowd goes ah, like full stadium just screaming at. Her. And yeah. I was like, she'd already jumped already, so she was probably used to it, but I hadn't heard it. And I, I hadn't been in the stadium and heard, I felt it. And I literally, I was bawling my eyes out. I had sunglasses on everything, but I was crying. I was like, I, I, what am I doing? <laughs> I'll get goosebumps <laughs> like now here. Yeah, yeah. Like that noise, is, it just stays with you forever. And I, I, we had to walk 100 meters down um, down the home straight. And there was always people like shouting at me. And I was like, I'm not, I can't, <laughs> can't look at you. I can't acknowledge <laughs> that you're there. And it was it was a completely different experience to what I'd had in any previous champs where, I'd been in the MCG, I'd been in Beijing and Bird's Nest, I'd been to World Champs, Commonwealth, whatever, and it was, it was, I'd had people screaming, but I loved it. I was like, yeah, oh, this is amazing. But when you went to London, it was like, oh my God, like it's a different level. <laughs> I qualified for my heat. Kevin Borlet, Belgian 400 meter runner, beat me in my heat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he thrived on it. He was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Because it wasn't for him, not, no one was shouting for him, but yeah. he was just yeah. getting the whole energy thing. 
Um, and so I qualified for the semi-final. And uh, when I came out of the semi-final, I was ready for it. I was like, yeah, let's go. I was, I was pumped. I was so excited. I was like, everyone's shouting. I was like, yeah, come on, take it all in. Enjoy the moment. <laughs> um, really thriving. And I, like the pain side, it feel like it was going away. You know, like everything was just like, I was positive in a good place. I got a decent semi-final. It was quite, I could make the final from here. Um, I should have really come first or second in my semi-final. But got behind the blocks, stadium goes silent. And I hear one guy go, no. <laughs> I hear about 20 guys start, no. And then literally like one section of the stadium oh, does it. Oh, man. I would have been and there like, doing that. <laughs> the whole stadium did it. I shat myself. There's no, no other way of describing it. Literally, uh, they say like 5p, 50p, like my arsehole literally went tight as anything. All I could think about was don't fall start. And that was yeah, all I could yeah. think about. My race was gone. My race, the way, all that relaxation, all that confidence, everything just disappeared. And it, there was no way, like, um, like I, I didn't run terribly. I probably ran about the same time as I did the day before. But, um, yeah, like, I, it was a, a semi final that was easy to qualify from, and I messed it up. Um, but the noise for 350 meters of that race was incredible. But yeah. the silence for the last 50 meters, it was the worst <laughs> feeling. Like, I was coming down the home straight and I knew people knew I wasn't going to get in at top two. And they yeah. could see it. I was probably, I think I was fourth or fifth. And I was like, I could feel the noise drop, 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 drop. I was like, yeah. oh, shit, it was tough. I was going to ask you about that if you if you ever had the Rooney chance because I'm a big Man U fan as well, so okay. I would have been I would have been chanting that. <laughs> no, it was it was amazing, and the thing was, uh, in in hindsight, I wish I'd have spoken to Wayne Rooney. I wish I'd have just gone to a match at Old Trafford, yeah. And like knowing how it was going to like knowing that it could happen, um, and being just more prepared for it, like yeah, just to literally have a conversation with the guy, like how do you handle it? And he probably just said I, I don't notice it anymore or whatever, but like. Yeah, when it did hit me, it was yeah, it was like a, it was a weird, weird feeling. Um, it's hard because you can't really prepare for those moments um, because you, you've obviously never been in it. I talk about um, if I've ever played in finals, my lack of experience in those moments, I really struggle with or, or struggled with because I, I didn't know how to cope with it. It was it was a sort of a new feeling to me. So yeah, I could definitely see how um, how that would have affected you, especially the crowd. I imagine that was just oh. It was an amazing, yeah. amazing thing to have, like to look back on and be like, I got a picture of the night where I'm coming out of the blocks and you see it's like a full stadium. And like uh, people, so I think at first, like it was kind of like people just didn't know what was going on. And as soon as they worked out what it was, they were like, oh, like, I, and my coach was in the stadium and he, he said the same. He was like, well, no, he couldn't handle it. It wasn't even for him and he couldn't handle it. So um, it was an amazing thing. And it's happened since and I've loved it. Yeah, like, I've absolutely loved it. As soon as it happens, I'm like, yeah, come on, a bit louder, let's go. <laughs> uh, yeah, do that media blockout that you talked about. Um, yeah. So you thought that really helped you? Because um, I see other competitors like I know that Anthony Joshua when he when he lost that Andy Ruiz fight, he sort of, he sort of did the same thing. Especially mm. during um, camp, he, he won't be on social media at all, um, and that sort of helps him prepare. So he's yeah. fully focused. Does that do you think that that um, helps you prepare? I think it was just I didn't want people blowing smoke up my ass. I think um, you can believe your own hype very quickly. You can hear, read some good articles about you, or do some interviews, and you start thinking you're, you've made it. Um, and that was for me the most important thing. Like I'd had a good relationship with the media; um, they'd always been pretty supportive. Like one or two times they told me off, but like I deserved it. <laughs> so I had a good relationship, and I just I felt like they respected me enough to say like 
well, even when I saw them, and if they came to Loughborough to do an interview with someone else, they would, they'd just ask, and I was like, like, no, I'm just not doing it, and they were cool about it. Um, it was never a problem. And um, no, it was just, it felt like it was just, because everything was, for, like I said, for five years, it was talking about 2012. It was just like, look, just focus on running 400 metres to yeah. the best of your ability, and then the rest will handle itself. Mm. Talking about running 400 metres, um, a question that I've started asking all my all the guests is because it relates to my project at, at university. So I'm sort of interviewing coaches at the professional level in um, football to see what they value um, psychologically, what are the most important psychological attributes um, that make a successful footballer. But I want to ask you, what are the most important psychological attributes or qualities you feel make a successful 400 meter sprinter? Um, it's probably the same as footballers, to be honest. I think it's like perseverance, but. Um, the one thing I've always said, and I, I don't know if it's a mental attribute or whatever, but it's just honesty. Um, if you don't train hard, you get found out in this sport. It's too, it's yeah. too competitive. It's, it's too black and white. Like if, your times are there, and if you don't hit those times, and then if you've not done something right, or you've, there's no real hiding from it. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, it's always just been about being honest to myself, honest to my coach, um, honest to the people who support me. Like there's no time. If you, I think a lot of athletes do bullshit themselves to be honest and yeah um it's a weakness i think that you can you can eradicate quickly by literally just having honest conversations with yourself you don't even need to talk to other people and then once you get to that point where you can be honest and say be critical of yourself and find what you need to do then you can go and communicate with somebody else and you can find a way to make it better you know um, i've had yeah. people in my career who i can sit down and have very they know i'm not bullshit and they know like if i'm coming to them so we're going to have a clean honest discussion about what needs to be done and they'll help me find a solution. Um, and I think that's I think that's key in every elite performer. Mm. Uh, well, on this, yeah, on is the first time it's come up uh, in throughout the whole episode, so it's really interesting. What are you going to say? I tell you, uh, someone who you have a very similar mindset to in terms of that honesty is um, Matt Fraser uh, of CrossFit. Yeah, uh, I feel like he's someone who says he'll put that work in during that year and you get found out at the CrossFit Games if you haven't put that work in, especially on, especially how unpredictable CrossFit is in terms yeah. of the different things that you do um, and obviously how successful he is. And that, yeah. you share the same mindset as well, how successful you were. Um, what, another thing that I wanted to ask was, so was you always the anchor of the relay? Pretty much. Like yeah. um, I did it as a junior. Um, and then when I joined the seniors, they didn't really trust me at that um, at that level, which is fair. They don't put you don't put a 19 year old taking the last penalty. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that was basically the same mentality. It was like, right, let's just put him on a safe leg, let him find his, his way. And I think uh, my first year, two year, my first year as a senior, they kind of like um, put me on the second leg. And I did another one in, I think, in 2000. Then I went. To, sorry. 2005 I went to the world champs I was 18 and they put me on second leg and I ran that twice and then 2006 I went to Commonwealth Games in Melbourne and I kind of messed up on last leg there um I got the baton in fourth came back fourth but a guy from behind me came I went past one person and then another guy came past me I think I came into the home straight second yeah. and died but I learned a hell of a lot that day like it, it taught me how to be like I, I went to the world juniors that year and ran a silly silly split and then we came from seventh to third um and then from then on like i think i had one more time where they put me on third leg the guy it was 2007 and i think i got the bat and maybe i had i was good at relays um 
I had to, I maybe got the band maybe about, I think it was like third and I came back first by about 10, 15 meters. And the guy that he said, like, he didn't trust me to do last leg coach. And the guy he said he did trust to do last leg came back 15 meters down in third place. And I was like, well, okay. Like from then on, I was always last leg. That was it. It was just like back, back me to do it and I'll do a job for you. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask you. So what do you think sort of makes a good anchor uh, in terms of psychological attributes that you feel you need um, to sort of have that pressure of, of being the last person? Um, I, I said it tongue in cheek in an interview once uh, before. It's like big dick energy. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but like in reality, it's just about the confidence in yourself to do the job. Like you've got your team are going to do the best they can to set you up. Um, and I've always thrived in that position of like, it's, uh, I'm doing it for the boys. I'm doing it for my squad. I'm doing it to, because they put everything into me. And I always say to them before the race, like, whatever you do, just keep going. Just don't yeah. stop. Even if you're dying, just put it on the line and I'll do everything I can to get the battle back for you. Um, and that's when we've had the most success is when we've had everybody putting every, 110% into it, all those cliches and whatever. But, um, it's just about backing myself that I can go and do a job and come back with a medal. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that because at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that rugby, like you preferred kind of that individual sport yeah. as opposed to, you know, team sports. And I feel like that event specifically is in a sense, a kind of team event. Okay. So it's like, what's the difference for you between rugby and that? Because you're relying on your teammates to not F up as well. So yeah, I, I think the transition from being like a spoiled young kid uh who couldn't handle losing to going okay look we're in this together we're gonna fight together um i think that came from being in a training group i loved like uh, being in a good group of people where you can work together and get the most out of each other is, is it was definitely something that i learned uh, and developed and i'd like to think i'm a fairly decent training partner kind of helpful yeah. <laughs> probably piss them off sometimes when i start talking mid-rep <laughs> but um no like it that's that's something i had to learn and something i developed and um it's definitely something that probably is in all parts of my life now like it's uh i'll always give the energy to people who give me energy um someone said to me and it's it's a common uh proverb or whatever it's about like what uh time if someone in time is the most important currency you either invest it or you spend it or, or waste it or whatever and I'll invest in my guys and I'll hopefully it comes back to me in medals. Yeah, I think a lot of it's athletic maturity as well. You say you've gone from like being a boy to a man. I recently spoke about this. Um, so I just recently took part in someone's uh, disso and we were talking about um, clutch moments and then also choke moments. I was talking about my choke moments and they was often when I was young. Um, and then yeah. like, I feel like that athletic maturity is sort of maybe who, who I am today and a bit more calmer under pressure and things like that. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, throughout what you said there, I feel like athletic maturity is definitely something that's helped you. Um, you have have you ever worked with a sports psychologist during your career? Um, no, not properly. I, I, um, 2012, there was, um, we were offered a lot of support um, and I found it was better if I could speak to ex-athletes. I just felt that, um, the i wanted to speak to people who've been in those clutch moments i wanted to feel that like they knew what i was talking about um in 2012 as well we kind of had like i remember once we had michael johnson come and speak to us and i was really excited about it and it was the worst thing ever like it was rubbish like the guy 
it was just a different person. He was not something that related to me at all. Yeah. Um, his experiences of the games were not going to be anything that we'd ever experienced. Um, like he was basically anything he needed done was done for him. Like um, he talked about going to the opening ceremony in Atlanta. And he literally said he sat in the air-conditioned room the whole way until he went out on the track, did his bit, and then he went back to air-conditioned room and he was gone. Like, it, was no, yeah. it wasn't like the normal athlete experience. Um, but then I, could, might, I might speak to like Ewan Thomas or Roger Black, who are like greats of the game for, for British 400 meter running. And they just give me positive energy and they kind of just gave me coping strategies for, not coping strategies, more like uh, mental prep strategies that I used later on in my career, uh, just about visualization and um sometimes they just said twat it simple stuff like that they, they use the right words that kind of got to me and um i think that's the sports psych was saying that maybe i should have used more um especially as i got older i needed to find something that was going to push me a bit more and um as you have kids you become quite soft and maybe i needed something that was going to separate compartment compartmentalize like that home life and that training life mm. You find that with the, the other Rooney as well. Obviously, he was so aggressive during his early career and uh, yeah. when he had kids and things like that, he sort of matured a little bit and calmed down, uh, yeah. which I think affected his game a little bit. 100%. Um, how much do you sort of value, uh, obviously, he didn't work with a sports psychologist, but how much do you value the mind in terms of succeeding in, in, in sport? Uh, for me, it's huge. I think, like, um, as I said, in 2000, 2000 uh, when I was... 26, 27, when I joined Marina Riders Group, and you're surrounded by people who are used to serial winners. They were just people who won all the time. Um, and that mentality they brought to training was something I had to learn. It was something I had to adapt to. Like, I was kind of like, I liked to train hard. I enjoyed that. It was something I prided myself, prided myself on. But it was this mentality that every day was a, was competition day almost. Like every, well, not every day, but every for the, the jumpers, every jump session, was a massive and important session and maybe I, I never I didn't understand that until I joined the group like every time I went to race pace I was a race I was in race mode and by the time I came to the season I was always ready to race it was never a problem um, I didn't have to take five or six races to get into my groove it was like I'm ready to go yeah. so the mindset like how you approach things with your mind is uh, is huge um, and the mentality of winning is it's is a different thing not everybody can win you can be the best athlete on the track. You can be the best like striker in the team, or whatever. But it might not always click. Um, and I think that's where the mind kind of takes over. Uh, I think when I, I won my first Europeans, I wasn't the best athlete on the track, but I was mentally the most prepared for it. And it, I kind of played some mind games beforehand. But it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was, it was uh, definitely the the power of the mind over the body. I think there. Yeah. We had that sort of in our last um, podcast about those mind games. Um, mm. What what would you sort of do? Because um, we had Marilyn Okoro on on our last yeah. podcast, and she was saying that um, she'd sort of fake it, fake it beforehand that she was calm, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that sort of put her opponents off. What what would you sort of do? To I did it for a couple of weeks. <laughs> so <laughs> my, my arrival at the Europeans was um, so. I, 2014, my arrival would be Matt Hudson-Smith, who was very new to the event. He's a very super talented 400 meter runner. He's going to the Olympics in Tokyo. Um, and he kind of came on the scene and he kind of, um, I think I was meant to race him in Florida early in the season and he pulled out like the day before or whatever, because he was, I think he was just nervous. Yeah. 
So I was kind of like, okay, I knew it was kind of weak. Like I was like, there's an opportunity here. Uh, and then he beat me in a race in Glasgow. We had a fantastic run, and he ran a big PB. I think he beat me. He came forty. He came second in forty-four nine. I think I was fourth in like forty-five one or something. But it was like, cool, right? You're the focus is on you now. That everyone's gonna be talking about you. And I just kept stoking it up. I was like, yeah, Matt's obviously the person to beat. Uh, he's in great shape. He's obviously he's new to the, to uh, the team and stuff. But you know, like that might be that might help him. And um, yeah, like he, I just kind of. Everything was about Matt. It was about Matt's going to do so well. I was super like positive about him, and then I was like, right. When it came to the race, I remember sitting next to him on the bus, and I was singing. I remember I can't remember what I was singing, but I was just singing away, having the time of my life. Like, and he was sitting there looking at me, going, "What the f is going on here? Like, this guy is mad." And yeah, uh, that was it. I was in his head. I think, um, yeah, it took a lot of the pressure off myself, and it kind of uh, just being. Like I was quite relaxed as well, to be fair. I'd found my rhythm by then. I was in a really good zone. Uh, I, it was my third championships of the summer. I'd done the British champs, the Commonwealths, and then I was at the Europeans. So I knew what I was doing by then. Uh, and I really was ready to run fast. So it does help when you are in that shape. Love that shithousery <laughs> on, the, on the bus. But, um, thanks for shedding light on, the, on kind of like these aspects in your career. But we're really interested in kind of like diving um, in your current projects, like what you're doing now. So we saw that you're currently working with Loughborough Cottage. Um, yeah. So tell us more about what's that about? So um, I actually studied briefly at Loughborough College uh, when I first moved to Loughborough and I never finished the, the I was doing a foundation degree in sports science management. It, it didn't interest me at the time. I think they were teaching us how to be, trying to train us up to be leisure centre managers. And it wasn't something I was ever interested in. Yeah. But I realised later on, like I think it was in 2015, I was like, you know what, if you really want to go into sports, uh, sports, not sports, what's the correct term? It's like sports politics, basically, like administration and stuff. Then you kind of need a degree. Um, so I was like, right, I went to the college. It's like, right. Is it possible to go get this foundation degree? Um, and I knew uh, two of the people who are, are working on the course now, and I had a good relationship with them. And they basically just said to me, well, what do you want it for? I said, oh, I need a job. I need to get a job later on in life. And they're like, well, how about we give you a job instead? So uh, they gave me a job um, as part of the youth talent program, which is the base level of British athletics is um, support network. And basically work with guys who are doing their A-levels and BTEC or level one to three, well, it's level three courses, I think. We do have one or two kids with learning difficulties. But it was basically, they, they do a course called a Diploma in Sport and Excellence. And I was an assessor. I was basically there to make sure they did their work, uh, do some phone calls. And that role is developed. Now you do professional discussions and uh, progress reviews. So you catch up with them regularly. You kind of make sure that they're training and doing all that, like the stuff, but also make sure they're doing well in, at school. Um, because like obviously a lot of these guys want to go to university as part of the diploma they get uh, points towards uh, the it's not UCAS is it UCAS still yeah yeah I think yeah yeah so you get like I think it's 60 points or something. it's quite a lot like um, as yeah. far as I'm aware uh, so it doesn't mean a lot but Loughborough doesn't accept it Loughborough University uh, Oxford Cambridge they don't accept it which is a bit annoying <laughs> yeah. anyway um, <laughs> but so that I've been doing that role for about three years and uh, Loughborough College decided they wanted to open up an athletics academy. Uh, so I put myself forward for a coordinator role and they just they gave it to me on the spot. It was kind of like, um, you're, they felt like my experience would be something that would be massive to young athletes coming through. Um, 
I think having done the work on the YTP, I was already doing a similar role, but this would be more hands-on. This would be working directly with a group of maybe, I think it was like, we were aiming for like 12 athletes, um, making sure that they're, I'm coordinating their day-to-day -day like life, like make sure they go to their lectures, make sure they go to training, make sure they're clean, you know, make sure they're, I, I, not a parenting role because I, I really want to separate that like the if they've got if they've moved to Loughborough um most of the kids at the moment will be local uh within like Leicestershire Nottinghamshire uh, yeah. Derbyshire I think is as far as they're coming from but they'll be commuting in and out every day uh but my my job would just basically making sure that they they completing their work and training and being respectful people and trying to give them as much advice along the way. So we'll be doing stuff on working on lifestyle, we'll be working on um, career goals, we'll be working on like, education through nutrition, sports psychology. So trying to just give them a rounded kind of approach to, it doesn't even like, doesn't matter about being an athlete, it's about being a coachable person. Yeah. Um, so that they can go in to do anything they want and be like good learners, good uh, listeners and adapt to whatever they've been they're taught rather than I think a lot of the athletes now that you meet and I think you you guys must see it in, in all walks of life that there's quite a uh, an entitled <laughs> group of yeah. people coming through now who basically feel like they they're owed everything um, and I, that's one so that's something I've really hated to see and I think hopefully with the college I'll be able to make a group of talented coachable people rounded people I feel like Liverpool College is that I went to Liverpool College when, when um, I did the level three uh, sports science uh, nice. there. And um, no, I think Liverpool College is, is definitely a great place to go and study and, and learn mm -hmm. the trade because uh, I don't know whether he still works there. Um, Danny Lee. Yes, Danny, um, my boss. Oh, man. That guy, <laughs> oh I haven't spoke to him uh, since I left Liverpool College, but he's the whole reason why I'm doing what I am today. So if you speak to him, let him know. Uh, cause I will do. Yeah, yeah, he shaped everything for me. The way he taught that psychology um, module, yeah. that sports science thing was unbelievable. Um, oh, he's a great lad. Other than being a Leeds fan, he's a great lad. <laughs> I saw that you're a Crystal Palace fan. Is yeah, that yeah, I'm a victim of where I'm from. You know, my parents, my dad's not really into football, and my mum loves sport, but she doesn't have a team. And then it was like, well, you're from Croydon, so you support your team that you can walk to. And, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just happy with a Premier League team, to be honest. What do you think to uh, Vieira? What do you think to that appointment? Um, I'm a huge fan of Vieira as a as a player. Like, obviously, grew up in the era when the, the Invincibles and Arsenal were the Barcelona of their generation. They were amazing to watch, and uh, I just hope he can bring that kind of leadership quality to the pitch. I think, like, as a as a manager, I mean, so um, yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious. I think uh, his record's not great to me. He's not good enough. Like. It's not a Roy Hodgson or something like that. Yeah. Um, but if we want to move up, then maybe that's who we need. We need. We tried it with Frank De Boer and it was terrible. So we're, we're once scarred, you know. No, it'd be interesting to see. I'm um, as a Leicester. Uh, I'm not a Leicester fan. I'm a Man U fan. But obviously, growing up in Leicester, everyone, all the Leicester fans want Zaha, but his price is just so expensive uh, to get him. Yeah. I don't think a club will go for him. So nice. you got him in the bag. It's that 25 percent that we have to pay to Man United that ruined it. It's kind of yeah. like. I think we'd have probably taken like 60, 70 million a couple of years ago, which is probably what it was worth. I don't think it's worth that now, but for us to sell it now, it's probably is still 60 million. And it's kind of like, mm. it's not really, who can afford that? And his wages aren't low. They're not, yeah. he's, he's, he's over a hundred grand. So um, it has to be a big team. And yeah, I think, uh, I think he turned his nose up at Leicester, which I was a bit like, I kind of, 
I know he wants like uh, a big top four team, but I'm like, well, they did win the league fairly recently and Definitely. they are a much better team than Palace. Like, there's no doubt about it. Like, uh, I chat to um, Ian String quite a bit and he does like the Leicester commentary and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah. every time it's Leicester Palace, he's always like trying to goad me into saying, I was like, I think you're going to batter us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always good to go into that mindset. And then if you yeah. win, it's a bonus. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I think that is a... Is quality oh, as well. Yeah. Oh, we've got we've got loads of talent. I think, um, and we're buying well at the moment. We're buying young, talented players from around the area as well. So people who know London know it's a working working man's club. You know, it's not like um, uh, a super conglomerate thing or whatever. It's it's just literally local team, local stadium, and um, people who can understand those fans. It's it's cheap season yeah. ticket holders, and it's not like it's not part of the. Fans. Yeah. yeah, it's not the football tourism thing that you get at Chelsea or Arsenal. And I remember Mourinho always going on about like, this is what he wanted from his supporters. He wanted the Palace kind of the noise. And But if you charge whatever Chelsea do charge for a season ticket compared to Palace, it's kind of like you're going to get that, that rowdy fan coming to the Palace game. Yeah. What's the Palace Stadium called again? Sellers Park. Sellers Park. Sick. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's the noise. Like when I watch um, during the weekends, like that's... Uh, tough place to go to as well yeah. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a story about crystal palace go on i um me and my friends we did this thing called gillette roulette i don't know if you've oh, ever heard of it i have not but um we basically if it's someone's birthday uh we'll occasionally do this so three o'clock kickoffs we'll go down to the pub and the first team that scores will go to that um that place and Crystal oh. Palace scored first. <laughs> and we went down to Crystal Palace. There's not many good bars in and around the stadium. Ah, oh, no, it's a bit of a rough area, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very rough. Uh, <laughs> we realised that when we got there. Uh, but we ended up going into, I think it was Shoreditch. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Nah, Back into London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but no, that's, that's our story of Palace. That, that's where I grew up, like Fort Neath. Like, that's a, a very vibrant multicultural area, but like, uh, it can be quite a dangerous place to be, but it's... I love it. Like I, I don't think I could live there anymore just because it's too noisy. <laughs> but um, compared to Loughborough, it's like peaceful and quiet. Oh, and, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, it's uh, it's a nice part of the world, if, and it, uh, I've got lots of friends and family still down there. And um, but it's a different boat. It's a different way of life. Uh, with kids now, I think like um, yeah, like I said earlier, I kind of want them to be in a nice, as sheltered as possible. But yeah. They get down. They get down there, and they get to see a bit of dose of reality. And yeah, it's it's uh, it's a different world. We also saw that you had um, a podcast, like you're a co-host uh, on the podcast. Yeah. So, what are your kind of aims and ambitions with the with this podcast? Um, at the time, um, myself and Dan Greaves, Discus Dan, he's going to his sixth Paralympic Games. He's just been selected, which is fantastic. Um, he is a Loughborough graduate. I think he's Doctor Dan Greaves and whatever. He's VIP at Loughborough. <laughs> love for uni um so we did it it was basically just messing about really like trying to get more i think at the time there wasn't that podcasts weren't as popular and they were it was a hugely growing market we just basically wanted to interview people who probably didn't get the same coverage as maybe other people i think british athletics in the past have been terrible at they focus on maybe three or four athletes right so you might have dina asher smith dina asher smith uh, Katrina Johnson-Thompson, Adam Jamili, and then maybe one other, Mo Farah. Yeah. Never really talked about anybody else. So you have Jess, Jess Ennis, Greg Wilford. So there's like five or six athletes there. But other than that, like 
it was like, well, there's a team of 70 people, you know? Like, why are you only talking about these? And then you don't even look at the Paralympians. You've got like Johnny Peacock and that's it. And I was like, there's some huge personalities in the sport. There's people that you can, that come from such diverse backgrounds that people come from all over the world and uh, have stories to tell. So that's basically what we, we did it for. Um, there wasn't like a, an aim. It was more just about getting pers people's personalities out there. Um, and along the way, like you find like nuggets of information. And we've got a couple that we've done in January, which between myself and Dan, we just haven't had the time. Well, I say we haven't had the time. We probably have had the time, but we, <laughs> neither of us have produced them. And um, we've got we've got one with a, a fantastic, really really good one with Joel Fearon, who's um, is a British hundred meter runner. He's run sub ten, and he, he does the bobsled. And he's an Olympic medalist in the bobsled. Um, yeah. And his mindset, like he, he's someone that. Like I was sitting there just like like this close to the camera, like just taking on everything he was saying. It was amazing. Um, what was his so name again? Joel Fearon. Oh. I would highly recommend getting uh, getting him on. His Talk about the bobsled is, team. Yeah. Um, yeah Ryan, Ryan Letts, he went to um, Loughborough College. He was there when I was there. Oh, no he, was, he, he was a couple of years above me. Um, so, yeah, no, he's, he's someone I want to message to try and get on the podcast, Ryan Letts. He's, uh, okay, his mate. mindset's good as well. I think I think you you have to be kind of mad to go in the bobsled. I think you have to kind of oh, have a, a couple of screws loose. But yeah, scary man. It's um, when you talk to Joel, it's about it's just about there's a reason behind everything. This is a reason why he's going and putting himself in danger. It's, it's not for him. It's for his family. It's for uh, to put food on the table kind of thing. And once you hear those stories, it's it's um, it makes you realise how important what we do as as sports people like. Um, for the people around us, not so much like for ourselves now. Like we got, he's got like four or five, four kids, I think. Oh. Glutton for punishment, but um, yeah, yeah it, 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 I did enjoy that. I've really enjoyed the podcast. Whether we keep doing it, I don't know. I think um, we'll see how it goes with these jobs. Yeah. <laughs> when you're yeah. a full time, when you're a full time athlete, life's easy. You literally go eat, sleep, train, repeat, and you got all mm -hmm. the time in the world to do whatever you want. And then you have kids, and then that's ruined. And then you try and do a podcast and a job as well, and it's like, oh, it's too many things. So. To be honest, I, I'm sort of the same, but the podcast is the only thing I look forward to. Everything else is like manual labour and then I have to do my disso, reading. But this is like where I come on and just chat. It's, it's class. It's good. And I think if you enjoy doing them and enjoy listening to them, they are quite cathartic. And I think in this world now, where obviously lockdown happened, and realise how lonely people are. Like podcasts kind of offer... A, a, a familiarity someone like i feel like i'm best mates with joe rogan i've never met the guy, you know what i mean yeah. just because i listen to so many of his podcasts and um i feel like um it kind of gives you that companionship and um it's, it's you forget how much people need it 100 um, I, I see a lot of uh, podcasts release them around uh, christmas like on christmas day they release christmas specials because some people don't have that family or friends to, to share that with on christmas day so i think that's yeah 100 a, a, a great point I feel like I was best with Peter Crouch when his podcast was popping. Yeah, brilliant. Chris Stark and all those guys. I was, just yeah, like, yeah. I was like, oh, I know. This. I knew, um, what's his name? Who's the, the third guy from Sheffield? Stark and... Um... Oh, how can I forget his name? He's, he's going oh, to laugh all the time. Uh, BBC... Chris Stark and... Where's my podcast? I have so. no idea. Oh my god, it's on the tip of my tongue. He's a lovely bloke. And he like so with my wife, like um he was like writing for the BBC at the time. So he came and watched her compete like loads because he wanted to learn about pole vault. Yeah. Uh, probably because he wanted to look at my wife. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um 
All right, here we go. Found the podcast. Let's get the information on it. Go to show. It's with Tom Fordyce. That's the one. How can you forget Fordyce? What and a he's, name. He's, he's <laughs> so knowledgeable and he knows this. He's a great journalist. Um, yeah. So, and Crouch is just fantastic. I, I've never met Crouch. I've always wanted to meet him. I've yeah. always felt like, you know, like you have your dinner table, who would you go for? I've got like three or four different dinner tables and he, he kind of is always around there, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. He always and that is a legend. Um, but yeah, in terms of all the questions we had for you, they were all the questions. It's been more like a big chat. But um, yeah. we always ask our audience and viewers on all different social media if they've got any questions for you. So we'll yeah. reel them off now. We'll get the best, the best for you. So the first one is, what are your hobbies outside of athletics? Um, it used to be watching movies and playing PlayStation. And now it's basically just being around my kids and trying to help and teach them things. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. What did you play on the PlayStation? COD. Yes. COD, okay. Yeah, oh, we're game. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, let's go trio, let's go. Oh, I haven't got a PlayStation anymore, basically, because oh. when I got kids, I was like, when I got kids, when I bought them from the shop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was when I when I was younger, I used to sit and play card. I'd come home from training, I'd have my protein, I'd literally sit and play for six hours, and then I'd be like, yeah. right, I have my dinner, and it would be a rubbish dinner, and I'd go to bed after like my, my mind was fried from playing all day. Yeah. So I was like, that's a that's something I can't afford to do now anyway. Like so I just um yeah, I got rid of my PlayStation and uh, I was the I, same. I miss I miss it every day. <laughs> Look, just start a lockdown. I'd, we just finished um our undergrad. I mean, I'd had, I had no responsibility because work was cancelled and it was like, yeah. I was just grinding cod every day. What a time to be alive. <laughs> it was. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, so the second question was, how do you maintain your body over a long period of time so that it keeps performing well? Um, how do I perform? I train pretty hard six days a week. Like, I think... Um, I've always tried to out train other people and sometimes I've broken myself in the process. Mm. Um, and I think it's just being responsible. Like it's understanding that I can't, even at a young age, I couldn't go out drinking. Um, I couldn't go out feasting on cake all the time. And when I did, I got injured. It was pretty simple. And um, So it's just knowing that you can't do that all the time and knowing that it, trusting yourself to make the right decisions. I think it's very easy to get led down. And during lockdown, I, I really enjoyed myself. I went to town. I was like, right. Once <laughs> yeah, the was just, yeah. when, it was, when it was postponed, once I knew I had another year of funding, I was like, right, I'm, I'm having my, my lad's holiday at home with my yeah, family. Yeah. Barbecuing every day. Um, I've never spent so much more on alcohol in my whole life. And it was just like, I was just enjoying myself. And then I realised like, I can't do this anymore. No. So my body was done. I got to like, September and I was like I, I was excited to go to training but I needed my body to catch up <laughs> and uh, it took a while you speak about that sacrifice you see in the England camp uh, people like Declan Rice and Sancho coming out saying they've never had a beer before and then yeah. Chilwell Chilwell's never had a Chinese I mean what what kind of life <laughs> what? is that <laughs> yeah I know what? I know it's crazy isn't it but I think like at, the, at that level like the respect I have for football is that it's, it is truly a global sport um, I think people talk about it like it's so hard to do it, be an athlete or cricketer or whatever, but nothing's good like football. Mm. There's nothing at that level. Like every kid, every young boy in the world who can kick a ball wants to be a footballer. Yeah. 100%. So it, it is the top, top 0. 0.0 whatever percent. And if that means you have to be that diligent and that prepared, like obviously at that level, you can have a chef, you pay for a chef, oh, you? Yeah. Day. 
And you they, can they, even they've got everything from, yeah, 100%. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, the next one is, I think this person's not had a great experience of 400 meters. He said, <laughs> why would you pick a sport that really hurts? 400 meters is basically a prolonged sprint. <laughs> um, yeah, he's, he's probably had a, he or she's probably had a very bad experience. So it it yeah. does hurt when it doesn't go well. I tell yeah. you what, every, pretty much every race this year has hurt. Um, <laughs> when it goes well, it's easy. It really is. It's kind of like you can run. I, I think um, when I ran, like, first time I ran 44 seconds, I was literally striding down. I, in Monaco, when I won in Monaco, I literally locked across at the clock at 100 metres to go. And I was like, oh, that's, that's quite good. Yeah, okay, Jesus. cool. And I just kept running down the street. And I ran, like, a PB, 44-7. I beat some really good athletes. And I was like, oh, and it, when it when it goes well, sport is very easy um, mm. because you've done all the hard work beforehand. The, the 400s, like um, the, the, easy, the when you train properly, the hardest bit is the training, and the easiest parts are racing. Um, yeah. And uh, to be honest, actually, I think the 800s a harder event. That's probably why I didn't do that. Oh really? Oh mate, that hurts. That's a prolonged sprint. Those yeah. guys at the top level, they go through and like so. I flat out, I've run 44:45, so 44 seconds for 400. They go through in like 48, 49. And carry on going it's unreal like at the top top level david radisha who won the london 2012 games and ran a world record in the final mm. when you break up his splits it's like it's like 24 seconds 25 seconds 25 26 it's like some people can't run 25 seconds you know what i mean like i think the splits wow. that you're doing like 11 seconds per 100 meters it's like yeah like so we go like yeah. 10 10 7 i think when i ran pb it was 10 nine around the first bend uh around 21 four at 200 32 four at 300 and then 44 four at about 400 so mm. it's it's crazy like when you do think about it but then you go to the next level again where guys are running trying to run sub 43 seconds now and it's like i find again, it crazy mo farrell and like when he finishes the event and they track his like last hundred meters and it's like what yeah, how is he doing that it's, it's incredible yeah. Um, but then you see, in, I think you do see it in other sports where guys are literally going, they've played a whole game of rugby in the 79th minute and they're literally still sprinting down the pitch and yeah, everybody's man. around them cramping up and they're still going. It, there's there's superhumans out there. And I think in rugby where you are, in boxing, when you get punched in the face and in the last couple of rounds, you're still going. That's yeah. that physical and men, mental mindset is, is, is incredible. Especially after you've been rocked, like Tyson Fury, how he come back after Deontay Wilder, oh, like 12th round. Yeah, I, I run around in a circle, mate. Like compared to these yeah. guys, who are getting punched in the face and holding their arms up for like three minute round, two minute rounds, whatever. Three minute rounds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of even just if, when you start doing it yourself and you hold, trying to hold your arms up for three minutes, it's it quite hard. <laughs> it it burns. Yeah. yeah. John's been John's been doing boxing in Spain recently, so uh, we'll hope to see him oh, yeah. on the scene soon. <laughs> it's so much harder than you think it is. Like hundred yeah. percent. The whole technique and stuff, like. Oh. I just took up a more easier sport. I've, I've took up golf, so it's not <laughs> <easier>. <laughs> I'm, I'm just there for leisure now. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, the fourth question was: How do you mentally prepare before a competition? Um, I suppose it's um, the mental preparation. Like I said earlier, is probably done way beforehand. It's um, you kind of done all the training, all the hard work. So you just go into the competition. You have to. What I've done in my later on in my career is a lot more visualization um it helps if i know the track if i've been there before i can go and go back through my memory banks and remember parts of the bend i, I basically work out 
every part of the track where where I need to be uh, at certain points. And once when I run well, those those things just happen. I just click and I, I follow the exact mind the map that I've done beforehand. I follow it through. Um, but there's simple things that I do before a race, like um, my bag is packed the night before. Uh, I've got everything I need before I'd even gone to the competition. It's all prepared, and I often overpack. Uh, but um, yeah it's like having that bag prepped uh, making sure I'm clean when I get to the track like it's saying like, I always shower before I leave for the stadium just because I'm like it's this it's treating it with respect in a way if you know what I mean I feel like if I come in there carrying if I'm slightly dirty or whatever it's or sweaty or whatever it's like no it has to you have to come in fresh okay. um, those are probably the, the the three things I've done the most like visualized yeah. prepared and clean that cleans uh, come on quite a bit. It's something that you uh, you quite value, yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. You don't want to stink, <laughs> in it? But like, it, it, it's just, I think it's yourself, isn't it? It's just like you get out of that shower, you're fresh, you're ready to go. So yeah. that's like look, look good, feel good. Yeah. Exactly, that's yeah. it. That's the words. Um, but yeah, they're, they're all the questions we had for you. All the questions our audience had for you. Uh, we thanks so much for coming on. It's been a great chat. I've thanks really so enjoyed much. it. Gents, um, thank you very much for your time. Yeah. We normally give this time, um, if you've got anything to sort of shout out, um, feel free to shout it out now. Um, I suppose I'm on every social media thing, except from TikTok, at okay. Mark Rooney. Um, I feel like I'm a bit old for TikTok. So. Yeah, we're um, on TikTok as well. It's, uh, it's a struggle, to be fair. It's, it's, it just feels like more work. I'm like... <laughs> And to be honest, social media is work. I don't enjoy it as much as I used to. Um, I do think it's more of a job than anything. And hopefully now I don't have to do as much of it. Uh, and then obviously, if if you're a young uh, athlete and you're looking to come to, uh, you're looking to study, do your A levels, B tech, level one to three courses. So maybe people who have um, maybe not thought that education is for them, they can come and do like um, a level one course, level two course uh, at Loughborough College, and you can find the all the information at. Uh, through Google, Loughborough College. Yeah, Loughborough College. Simple. No, definitely. I think that Loughborough College, um, I sort of didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, it, I knew I wanted to do something in sport, and then I went and done that sports science and then picked my favourite module out of the lot, and it was psychology, and, and, and now I'm here. So, yeah. I've got yeah. a prime example, everyone. Yeah, I love a riot. <laughs> but, yeah, the no, if you, if you could please share this with your friends or someone you feel will benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, comment down below any questions you had or any guests you want us to get on in the future. But other than that, thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you in the next one.